I want to go ahead and invite Beth up. She's going to be reading for us um, out of Revelation. And if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn with us um, to Revelation chapter 19. We're going to be reading verse 17 all the way through chapter 20, verse 10. And if you're able, please stand with us out of respect for God's Word as Beth reads for us. Beth, pass off to you. Good morning, church family. The passage today comes from Revelations 19, 17 through 21, and Revelations 20, 21 through 10. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that flew directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might deceive the nations, he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their hands or their foreheads. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign for a thousand years. And when a thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Pray with me. Father, help us as we look at this text. Uh, So much here. 
And as I already prayed this morning, there's so much I would like to say, so much I want to say, but I only want to say what you want me to say. And so help me, um, Lord, I pray that you would guide um, the words that come out of my mouth, that they would not be mine, but they would be yours. Um, and that we as your people, we would receive and hear on what you would have for us and that your spirit would then work in our hearts and our lives uh, to conform us um, into the image of Jesus by the work of, these, uh, of what you've communicated and what you've given to us as your people. And so, Lord, uh, we just pray your help and ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, so funny thing, uh, I don't know if you see that the title of this sermon um, looks like it's Pray, um, but interestingly enough, that's not the title of the sermon at all. That is because of a kind of a funny story um, that happened. As we gather together as pastors, um, what tends to happen is I do a lot of work in the text, and then we get together you know, what's called a teaching team, and we talk through things, and we engage things, and then after that teaching team, I go back and study the scriptures and, and look at what God might have and develop a sermon, and then I send those notes to our team, and I did that. Um, after studying Revelation 19, 20, and at the top of the, the sermon, I put pray, pray, exclamation, exclamation point, LOL, pray more kind of idea, um, calling them, uh, please pray, because this is one of those texts that has tended to bring division to the church more than unity to the church, and was just asking for prayer. Well, that turned into the title of the sermon, um, which wasn't the title of the sermon at all. So um, nonetheless, uh, it does uh, recognize the reality of the challenges when it comes to particularly Revelation, uh, end of Revelation chapter 19 into 20, uh, and what we see in this text. Now, there's a couple things we're going to do as we approach this morning. One, we're going to give you some general ideas of ways to interpret uh, this millennium, this thousand years that we see in chapter 20. And we're also going to try to anchor ourselves, as we have done throughout the book of Revelation, into truths that are important and there for us, regardless of how we interpret this text. Now, in short, uh, let me kind of give you an understanding of what we see in this text. We see, um, as we talked about last week, the enemies of God are beginning to be removed from the stage. We saw them come onto the stage, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, the prostitute, and then we saw last week them beginning to be removed. We see the, the, the Babylon, the, uh, the prostitute removed. Then in early part, the latter parts of 19, we see the beast and the false prophet removed. And then after this thousand years, we see the dragon removed. Uh, so they're all taken out. And then you've got this space in between. Now, there's many different thoughts on what this millennium is, this thousand years is. Now, in those thoughts, there's kind of three primary views. There's premillennialism, there's postmillennialism, and there's all-millennialism, right? So, so consider that, why do we get the words pre and post and all these different things? The idea is kind of where is the rapture of God's people in relation to this thousand years, right? And so in short, premillennial people, that they interpret this text to kind of believe that this is, uh, the, the, the rapture is going to happen before the thousand years, they fall into one camp, and then there's another group that believe that the rapture is going to come after the thousand years, and that's called postmillennial. So you can kind of see where those terms come from. I want to walk real quick you through some of the specifics of how these texts are interpreted in various ways so that we can kind of see a generality of that. Now, 
as I enter into this, there is no way in the world I can give you all the details and all the specifics and all the different things throughout history of how people have interpreted this text or Daniel chapter 7 or, or, or Daniel 70 weeks, uh, the end of Daniel, uh, the book of Ezekiel, Matthew chapter 24, and all of these scriptures in, in, that we've been given in regards to the end times can't do that. If you want to know more specifics and you want to just read and you love to know all the details, we've got documents out in Info Central. If you go to our Gospel Live classes, you'll get those in class and you can read through that. You can see the different ways and why things are interpreted in more detail. But in general, here's kind of how these pan out. Now, Premillennialism, as I said, believes there's going to be a tribulation time, and then Jesus is going to return, and then he's going to establish a real physical thousand-year reign called the millennium. And then the nations are going to rise up against Jesus, and he's going to crush them, and that will enter into eternity. Now, within premillennial idea, there are several different camps. And I want to illustrate some of this stuff to you, and so you'll see on the screen an image. And the first two pictures is kind of the major camps within premillennial idea. All right, so you see on the left hand, you see the first coming of Jesus. Everybody kind of agrees we know what that is. But then you see this idea of space in between. And those in premillennial spaces believe that there's going to be a seven years of tribulation that comes. Now, when we talk about seven years of tribulation, that's things like the seven seals opening up, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, the seven thunders, uh, the dragon and the beast, the Antichrist. All that, they believe, is going to happen in that seven-year period of tribulation. At the end of that, there's going to be a battle which we read about in chapter 19. And God is going to beat that battle. He's going to come back and he's going to rapture his people up. And then there's going to be a thousand years of physical reign of Jesus. Like he's going to be here physically. So he comes to the earth and he takes his people and, and, and reigns with us in a physical, physical kingdom right, for a thousand years on this planet as it is right now. At the end of that, Satan will be released and he will then rise up another army, and God will defeat that, and he'll send us to the last judgment on into eternity. So that is what we would call a post-tribulation premillennialism, right? I know those big words. You guys are going to get all these fun big words, right? Post-tribulation premillennialism, meaning the rapture comes after the tribulation, but before the millennium. Now, within premillennialism, there's also called pre-tribulation, dispensational premillennialism. Tongue twisters, right? In essence, you see from the picture that they believe that the second coming, the white horse, Jesus coming on the right horse, actually comes before the seven-year tribulation. So he comes, brings his church. We get raptured out. We don't experience the tribulation. The seven seals, the seven bowls, the seven trumpets all happen to the world during that time frame. Now, there's people who come to faith in Jesus during that time frame. And then at the end of it, there's a second coming where Jesus comes again, bringing the church, and at that point, he establishes a physical thousand-year reign. Again, at the end of that, nations will rise up against him, he'll put them down, and then we move on into all of eternity. You, you totally have all this, right? Like, perfectly? This is where it gets everything gets confusing. There's also something called... Um, mid-tribulation, premillennialism, but I didn't add that in here because it's not as widely held belief, and so didn't uh, think we had time to go through that. Now, that's in general the idea of premillennial, all right? Now, the next one is postmillennial. 
Post-millennials believe that there is going to be a millennium, but that millennium is a season in which the church ultimately reigns on this earth um, in, in Christ's stead. So um, they think in terms oftentimes of historical interpretations of things like Matthew 24 and Daniel's 70 weeks, that much of that has already um, happened with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and that we're kind of in this place and season in which the church is growing and getting stronger and will ultimately lead to a time when the church rules the world in Christ's stead for a thousand years. And then Jesus will come after the nations rise up against the church, and Jesus will come again, and that will be the last judgment leading us into eternity. Now, this still exists, but has fallen out of favor. And the reason why this has fallen out of favor in many places in evangelicalism is because, well, history and reality has showed us things aren't getting better. So this gets hard to hold to because things keep getting worse. Godlessness increases. The church isn't getting stronger. And it was some believe that when this nation was established, that was kind of the beginning potentially of that time because you had godly foundations of a country going forward and doing all kinds of things in the world. But then World War I and World War II happened and people were like, hmm, again, things don't seem to be getting better. So this still exists, but it's fallen out of favor. The next one is amillennialism. This is a strange term because it says no millennial is what that means, but they do believe in a millennium. They just believe that that millennium is a symbolic thousand years, not a specific one. So like when Jesus says, or when the scriptures tell us that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, they see that as a symbolic understanding of what he owns everything, not only the ones on a specific thousand hills, right? And so they see that this is the church age and that all this is happening during this season, during this symbolic millennium. Right? And, and, and they would look at the text we just read and, and oftentimes see multiple things seen, or one thing seen multiple different ways throughout Revelation, right? And so they would see both of these battles represented as one battle seen from two different perspectives. And, and we've talked about how that's called recapitulation. And so what they tend to do is look at specific things like the rapture, the final judgment, and try to align those in the book of Revelation, saying that it looks like we're seeing the same thing multiple different ways in the book of Revelation. So they believe that at the end of this symbolic millennium, that there will be a real battle where the nations come against God and his church, and that Jesus will come at that point and bring about the defeat of his enemies, final judgment, and lead us into the new heaven and the new earth. Now, here's the thing. Like, this all gets so complicated. And there's so many things in this space. And I wish I had time to go through all of the components of this. If you know, you, if you've been around since this service, has, since we started this series, you know I lean towards an all-millennial belief in terms of the interpretation of this text. But here's the thing that's important for us to understand today. I'm not going to stand up here and try to convince you that the amillennial belief is the right belief. That's not the goal here. The goal here is for us as a church to look at the truths that are here and to unify around the truths that are here and look at how, does, how are we, as God's people, called to live in the midst of the world that we've been given. Because here's what we can all say. Jesus is going to come back when Jesus comes back. Right? Like, he's going to come back when Jesus comes back. 
He's going to establish a new heaven and earth when he establishes a new heaven and a new earth. Our job is to take these texts and see the truths that are in these texts and learn how do we live in accordance with this. And so when we consider this, it's really important for us to understand you may be an absolute diehard premillennialist and you believe that with all your heart, but you are not. We are not to divide with someone who believes like an amillennialism space. In fact, we agree on far more than we disagree. So just think about some things, about some ways that we disagree or ways that we agree. One, we hold to the inerrancy of authority of Scripture, regardless of how you believe regarding millennialism. We hold to a literal return of Jesus, gathering his church. We hold to the judgment of God against sin. We hold to the absolute faithfulness to God, to, of God to fulfill all of his promises. Not some of his promises, but all of his promises. Right? So Old Testament promises made to the people of Israel are not just forgotten, He's going to fulfill them. Now, amillennial people versus premillennial people have different views on how those will be fulfilled, but they would all hold to the reality that he will fulfill his promises. They hold to literal interpretations of vast majority of Scripture. And let me be clear. When we read a text like this and we hear of the dragon being bound by a chain, do we think that's a physical chain made of metal? that holds a spiritual being? No, we believe that's symbolic. It's symbolic for something spiritual happening. That understanding of scripture within the context of this type of scriptural literature does not mean that the creation account is not a literal seven days. That's not, that you can't do that because that's a different kind of genre of scripture. Right? Like meaning that it's narrative, it's descriptive, it's telling us something specific that God did. And so we believe and hold to literal interpretations of the vast majority of God's word. We hold to absolute and complete reign of Jesus. We hold to an eternal heaven and earth. We hold to both spiritual resurrection and salvation and intermediate state of the soul with Jesus upon death for those who are in Jesus and a physical resurrection. We hold to increased lawlessness and godlessness, persecution, and a final time of crisis. We hold to belief that these things all have profound real and tangible effects upon the physical world and can or will be seen. We hold to the purpose of the church as light and salt, called to be set apart to endure, to bear witness, and proclaim the lordship of Jesus. We hold to some level of God's plan continuing to include ethnic Israel. Like, here's the reason. You're like, well, I didn't catch all those. I didn't write them all down. My point is not for you to write all that down. It's to understand that what oftentimes the enemy would like to use to break the church apart and divide us, we are far more unified than you think we are. More often than not. And you can hold to different views on this particular issue and still hold hands with one another in Christian fellowship to the calling that God has given to us all. Amen? All right. I'm glad we got that. We all figured it out. Because we all have the millennium figured out. And we know exactly what it's all about. That's sarcasm. We don't. And so we need to hold that stuff with humility. And my desire here is to pastor us as a church to be faithful to what God has called us to today. And I believe there are some profound things the scripture points to. And I think the first thing that it points to and the first truth that it points to that we need to be reminded of in this day, in 2023, is that Satan deceives to make the nations rage. Satan 
is a deceiving being. We have talked about that over and over again as we look at this, at the book of Revelation. Like he is a deceptive liar. It's his character. It's what he does. And his goal is to deceive the nations, to deceive the people. I mean, multiple times we've seen in what we read this morning, the false prophet and the beast, they were there to deceive those who received the mark of the beast. We read in verse or chapter 20 that in some ways Satan has been bound from deceiving the nations, but then at the end we see that he's released to deceive the nations again. It's like deceive, 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 deceive. Satan is a deceiver. Now, what does this text show us about the nature of Satan's ability to deceive? Well, we know that Satan can deceive by whispering lies in our hearts and lives. So think about Jesus. Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness and and Satan was tempting Jesus and he was using scripture twisted to deceive, to try to deceive Jesus, which he didn't. He, he whispers things into us to try to tempt us, to deceive us. Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about how his concern was that the church would not be led astray into deception, away from pure devotion to the king. And so right now in this world, we know that Satan is trying to deceive even the church to lead us astray from pure devotion to him. And while there are certainly blinded people to the gospel in this world, as 2 Corinthians points out, we also know, based on 2 Corinthians and what Jesus says, that there is a light that can pierce that darkness. Amen? That light is Jesus. It's the church. It's the gospel. And I would say that part of what is being communicated in this text, at least my belief is, is that what we're told is, is Satan is being bound from being able to deceive the nations from hearing the gospel at some level. And you know why that's important for us? Is because there's hope. No matter how dark someone is, no matter how, and how much darkness someone is in, there is hope that the light can pierce through the darkness. Amen? Satan cannot prevent that. He can try to prevent it, but he cannot prevent it. So if you have a loved one right now, and you know them, and you feel that they are in utter darkness, and they cannot see the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have hope that God can pierce through that. Satan can't stop it. But we see in this world that one of the things that he likes to try to do is he tries to, to prevent the gospel. Right? He tries to make the church apathetic. tries to make us not care about the lost. Like we get so wrapped up in our own individual worlds that we don't care about those who are dying without Jesus. Seems oftentimes that he likes to try to keep our eyes distracted away from the gospel. Seems that in this text he is prevented from fully being able to deceive the nations to gather in one accord, in unified effort to kill and destroy the church and make war against God. One day, though, he'll be able to. And that's what we'll see. But else, what else do we see in this text in regards to Satan's deceptions? Well, we see the man is responsible for his rebellion. And you say, well, how do we get that out of this text? And why is this important? Well, the nations we see are gathered. We see that they're gathered because of their rebellion and their sin in themselves, also in line with Satan's deception. See, they've had life and death put before them, and they've chosen death. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. 
Proverbs chapter 9, verse 12. If you are wise, you're wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. If you scoff, you are the one who bears it, not somebody else. And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains on myself. This is Job speaking about uh, when his friends were saying, well, if you sin, you sin, and that's why this stuff is happening to you. And Job's saying, listen, if I have sinned, if I have erred, that's on my shoulders. I am responsible for that. In James chapter 1, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Then in Deuteronomy he says, See, this is God speaking to his people, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. See, here's why this is important for us. Isn't it easy for us to want to find someone else to blame for our own sin? Like, like we want to blame someone else for our sin. Adam did it in the garden, didn't he? Well, it's the woman. You gave her to me. She's the one that messed this all up. All right? Someone's, I don't know, I don't know who said that, but I hope your wife is not in here. Um, or maybe she needs to be in here. I don't know. But, but in that story, you think about what happened. Like Satan deceived Adam and Eve. Like he speaks lies of deception to Adam and Eve, but they were responsible for listening to the lies. Like so many people will be like, well, well I, I, this isn't my fault. Like how could God keep me accountable, hold me accountable for these things? Like if I was born this way, if I lived this way, if it felt so good and so right and on and on and on it goes, listen, we are all responsible for our sin. The wages of our sin is death. And so we read in the text of scriptures when Satan is gathering up armies of men against God, like he is speaking to their own rebellious nature that is inside of them. They will still be held responsible even though the deceiver is working in them. And man, we need to be reminded of that. We also need to be reminded, man, Satan's deception, it is powerful. It's powerful, isn't it? Because he says what we want to hear. Satan deceives by whispering into our hearts. The reason that his lies are so powerful, because at some level they speak to the things we want to be most true. This is why the scripture tells us our hearts are deceptively wicked. Listen, if you want to be sovereign, in other words, you want to be the one who rules your own life, then the lie that tells you about your own awesomeness and your own strength is going to be the most powerful lie because that's what you want to believe. If you want the world to serve you and your pleasures, then the lies that present our feelings and the fulfillment of our pleasures as the ultimate virtue, they're going to be the most powerful lies. They're the ones we're going to hold on to because, man, it does not feel right to us. It feels good. If you're someone who just feels out of control and you feel anxious about the world and your life and where it's headed, then the lie that tells you that there's no hope speaks mostly to you. Or the lie that tells you that if you just try this drug or you buy this product or we elect this candidate, you're going to find peace and release from your anxiety. That's going to be the most attractive lie. Like if you already feel like a failure, then the lies that make you hate those people who would proclaim you to be broken 
are going to sound the best to your ears. Like, this is the reality of it. Like, when Satan speaks lies to us, he knows how to get us. He knows how to tempt us. He knows how we're bent already. He knows how we already doubt the Lord. And so the lies are going to go after those things. And they're going to feel the most powerful to us. He knows how to work our hearts. And it's why it is so imperative, so vital that we listen not to what things are being spoken to speak most deeply to us, but we only listen to that which is most powerful, and that is the Word of God. What does the Word of God say about ourselves? What does the Word of God say about our world? What does the Word of God say about the value of things, about how to find joy, about how to find happiness, about how to find contentment? What does the Word of God say? See, here's the thing that we need to be reminded. God's Word rarely affirms how we already feel. Let me, let me say that again. God's word will rarely affirm how we already feel. That is not the norm in our day and age. People want to go to church and they want to hear the word of God, affirm them, make them feel happy, make them feel joyful, make them feel emotional, make them feel encouraged. And listen, the Word of God, He has power to do all of those things. But most often, as a wicked and broken man who knows my own wickedness and brokenness, when I hear the Word of God, I am cut to the heart. And that's what we're supposed to be, right? Because, because we don't trust our own hearts. We can't trust our own feelings. We can't trust what we think to be right or true or feel the best. We have to submit ourselves wholly to the Word of God, fully to the Word of God. Like, like, this is such an important thing for us. Like, we need to see like, it's only His Word that opens our eyes to these things. We can't trust our hearts. Because his deceptions speak to our hearts. The word of God does not speak to our brokenness. It speaks against our brokenness. It speaks against our flesh. Satan can seek to make us apathetic to the loss, as I already mentioned. He, he can try to make people believe there is no God. He, he can try to keep doors locked to the gospel all day long. But in the end, we also see this, that God is sovereign. Amen? God's sovereign. Much of the imagery that's given to us in these two battle scenes, they're straight out of Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. We see that with the birds, as joyful as an image this is, the birds coming down to feast upon the flesh, that's in Ezekiel chapter 38. We see the words and the titles Gog and Magog in chapter 39, which represent the nations coming against God's people. In Ezekiel, we see this very strange tension that we've already started to talk about in regards to who is responsible for all of this rebellion. Let me show you what I mean. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 4. God says this, speaking about Gog. And I will turn you about, and I will put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out, and all your army, horses, and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. So in this text, it looks like God has put into the mouths of the nations a hook and is leading them to accomplish his purposes. So is that the end of the story? Well, in Ezekiel 38.10, it says this, Thus says the Lord God, On that day, thoughts are going to come into your mind, speaking again of Gog and Magog, 
And you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates to seize spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who were gathered from the nations, who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell at the center of the earth. So in this text, they're the ones devising the evil. So here's, here's what this is. We can't always put blame somewhere. Like we, we don't know all the things that are happening behind the scenes. Like in one sense, Satan is deceiving the nations. In an entirely another sense, those nations want out of their own hearts to go against God and God's people. Right? Like it's part of their, their inner being. They want to go against God and God's people. But in another sense, God is sovereignly over them, leading them to come against him in such a way that allows him to follow out his purposes. All can be true because God is infinite and he's beyond us and we cannot see the way he sees. But here's where it brings us help. When we understand that God is sovereign and we understand that God is behind in the midst of working these things out, that he is not threatened, then we can have an unbelievable confidence in our lives. No matter how dark the days get, no matter how much it looks like we are being surrounded by the enemy, no matter how much it looks like the world is coming up against us, no matter how much it looks like Satan is gathering armies to destroy the church, our God is in control. There's an image. Some of you may recognize it. Uh, this is taken out of the movie Return of the King, and it's at the very end of the movie when Aragorn brings his small, tiny little army against the hordes of Mordor. And when you think of Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 and Revelation chapter 19 and 20 and the battles that are going to happen at the end of the world, this is what it's going to feel like to us. This is what it's going to feel like to us. As the church... Remember, the road is narrow that leads to life. And we are going to be standing there, and we are going to be seeing the hordes come against the church. Is God concerned of this horde? Does he look upon this horde that comes against his people and cower going, oh no, I don't know if I can defeat them. The reason we can stand in a shield wall against the enemy is because we know that our God is sovereign. And at the end of the day, no matter how big the armies are that come against him, with one word, he will end it all. And we will be delivered as his people. He cannot win the day. No matter how much we feel like we are surrounded by Satan and the enemy and his lies and the culture. Listen, church, in the dark days that are to come, whether we live long enough to see this specific battle or not, when the dark days come, will you stand in the trust of the sovereign God? How many of you feel like it's pressing on you now? Like, we, me and my wife were having a walk last night. We were talking about that. Like, it just feels like it, everything's pressing on us now. Everything is against everything and anything godly. Everything from kids' toys to university education. 
It feels like we're being surrounded. Like I, there have been days when you read the news, do you not feel like this? It's just like three of us hanging in. Like we're hanging by the skin of our teeth and, and it feels like it's pressing us and surrounding us and there is no way of escape. Brothers and sisters, there is a way of escape. There's a way of escape. And we have confidence in it. No matter what our circumstances is, and it may not be culture. It may be the enemy pushing against you with illness or poverty or hunger or crushing anxiety and depression. The message of this text of Scripture, regardless of how you view the millennium, the message of this text text, is that God is not surprised by the horde and he is not afraid of the horde. He will defeat the horde. He will defeat everything that comes against his people. He cannot win this day. Satan. God will win this day. The keys, the chains, the abysses, what does all of that specifically mean? I think there's things that point to us that that God is restraining him. Don't, Don't we need to be reminded of that? It may look like he's not restraining him, but God still restrains. Thank goodness. The phrase that sticks out to me the most is Revelation 20, verse 4. Then they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They came to life. This is one of the most powerful phrases in Scripture. And I want to help put this into perspective for us. John says, or Jesus says through John, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. When did this happen according to this text? When we heard the words of Jesus and believed. We went from dead to alive. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 through 6, even when we were dead in our trespasses, so again, we were dead. What does dead mean? Dead. I know that that's one of those Greek words that we like to look at, right? But what does dead? Dead means dead. And we were dead in our trespasses, but made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you want to know what I know for sure? Because this text talks about a first resurrection, and this is the only place in all of the Scripture that uses that terminology. Here's what I think that it's reminding us of, right? We know that there is a first death, and we know there is a second death. The first death is when the body dies. Every one of us is going to experience that death. As Christians, we believe that we will be in soul, go to be with Jesus in an intermediary state, and we'll be with Jesus until he raises everyone up physically. And in that moment, and Brandon's going to talk about this next week, those that, have been, that are his that have been raised up physically will go on to a new heaven and new earth, but those who are not his will then go on to the second death where the, both the soul and the body will perish. Now, let's ask this question. Where's the first resurrection and the second resurrection? Well, we know the second resurrection is body and soul, new heaven and new earth. It seems like most likely the first resurrection is when you went from dead to alive spiritually. Most of y'all, I hope, remember that moment. 
I remember that moment. As I know this, there was a day I was dead spiritually. I didn't care about my sin. I didn't think about my sin. I didn't care about the things of God. Like I was dead spiritually. Like just, just dead. And I remember the moment when in a miraculous spiritual thing, God took that which was dead and made it alive. And it happened on a beach in the Dominican Republic after I had grown up underneath the gospel and I had heard the gospel. In that moment, he opened up my eyes and that which was dead became alive. And here's what I can tell you in that moment. In that moment, like everything changed for me. You didn't have to intellectually convince me of the reality of Jesus. You didn't have to intellectually convince me that his way was better. Like, like I became alive. And in that moment, my sin became weighty and it became ugly. And yes, I still fight it, but man, like God gives victory over it. And I imagine now in my life, in the darkest days of my faith walk, even in those moments where I've been most tempted to be like, man, oh God, where are you? What are you doing? Like there is no way I could turn my back on my Lord. I can imagine, like, how could I do that? Like, it's the only hope I have. It's the only reality that is true in my life. Like, there is a moment, and I hope you've experienced, where you were were dead and you were now made alive. Here's why this matters. A few weeks ago, we had a moment where one of our congregation members was in the hospital and they were really, really sick and they were getting some really bad prognosis and um, one of our gals um, was writing uh, an update and, and I totally understand what her heart was and so it's not intended to do that. But in her update, um, she simply wrote that um, the doctor said that, that this could be very life-threatening. And I was reading this text when I read that update, and I totally get what that person was trying to say and what they were trying to communicate. There was not a spiritual thing. But for me, reading this text, I wanted to scream out, no, it's not, because nothing can threaten the life of his sons and daughters. Because once you have been raised up, you are his forever. Like You cannot suffer a second death. You will not suffer a second death. And that's what this text says. Over such, the second death has no power. Such is who? Those who have already been raised up with Christ. Have you been raised up with Christ? I hope you have. Because if you have, then no matter what this world throws at you, no matter what hopelessness you feel, no matter how many of your loved ones pass on to go be with Jesus, you have a hope that the second death has no power over you and you can withstand. I'm reading a book right now called The Persecutor. It's about a a Russian um, who grew up in in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and he was part of the military police in Russia that was called to persecute believers. And I'm reading this book and I'm imagining like if I'm a believer living in Russia at that time, like how, how it would have felt so crushing, that an entire nation is trying to hunt me down, kill me, beat me, imprison me, and keep me from the word of God. And you know what? Those men and women were sustained because they knew two things. God cannot defeat, or God cannot be defeated. Light will always break through darkness. And the second thing is that there is no fear of the second death.
kill them, beat them, drown them, they have hope because of what Jesus has done. So here's what I leave with us today. It's out of the book of Colossians. If then you have been raised with Christ. So that's a question. Have you been raised with Christ this morning? Just, just ponder that for just a second. Have you gone from dead to alive? Have you come alive? If you have, if you have been raised with Christ, then here's what we are to do. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is our calling. When we read the text of, of chapter 20 and we see dragons being um, bound and we see armies being raised for those that have come to life in the midst of oppressing persecution and oppressing like culture and world, like we are to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. That is our goal. That is our calling, regardless of what this world seeks to do to us. And so the question for us is this morning, like, are we doing that? Are you doing that in your home, in your life, with your families, as students in school, in junior high, high school, as college students? Are you seeking the things above, or are you still seeking the things of this world? The things that will fade. That's the question I want to leave you with. On the same token, if your answer is no, I have not been raised then you are in danger of such a deep deception and hardening of your heart if you continue to not listen to the Spirit calling you to life. You're in danger of hardening your heart so much that you will find yourself among the armies that will seek to stand against him only to find there is no hope of standing against the living God. And Jesus does not want that for you. Jesus wants to raise you up. Jesus wants to bring life. And so his call this morning is that. That you would hear his voice and that you would turn to him and put your faith and your trust in him. In him alone, in nothing else. Not in a country, not in a, a political system, not in more money from the government, not in a product, not in material, not in people liking you, not in the praise of men, not in social media, not in becoming influencers, not in pornography, not in alcohol, not in drugs. There is no other hope but in Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can take that which is dead in you and make it alive. And as one who's experienced that, I plead with you, come to Christ. It is, it is unbelievable what he can do in a man and a woman. Come to him. And for those of us who are in Jesus, the, the admonition is this. Are you seeking that which is above? I want to encourage you to stand with me. And I, at this time, as we stand, I want to invite our pastors and, and prayer counselors and elders. I want you, would you guys just come down here at the front? Because we're going to end our service a little different than we typically do and I'm going to pray over us here in just a second as a prayer of commission. And if you want to talk to somebody after the service about coming to faith in Christ, that you will be raised to life, that you don't have to fear the power of the second death, and you don't have to worry about that, 
Like, we want to be here to talk with you. But this morning, I want, to, I want to challenge you as believers, if that's where you are, to consider much of what this text has pointed us to. And as you walk out, you're going to be able to receive a takeaway card, these little blue cards. And there's some questions on here that I would want you to consider. One is to consider and write down three areas of your life you are most susceptible to the deceptions of the enemy. If you can't think of them, then spend time in God's word asking that he would reveal that to you this week. Where are you most susceptible to the lies of the enemy? The second question I would ask you is, are you willing to accept a responsibility for your actions, for your sins? The scripture says the wages of sin is death. And if you recognize that, then you only have one hope, which is that someone else pays that wage. And then the last question that's here is simply this. Ponder very specifically, writing down three ways you can seek that which is above if you've been raised with Christ. How can you seek that which is above? How can you practically do that in your life? So I want to just ask you to close your eyes. You can bow your head, not bow your head, however you want to do that, but close your eyes. We don't need to look at people around us. We don't need to be mindful of others. I want this just between you and the sovereign God. You and the one who brings that which is dead to life. And I want to just, are you seeking the things above Are you trapped in the lies of the enemy? Father, I pray in the next just couple of moments of stillness, only you, by your spirit, can speak to the hearts of each person in this room and truly answer those questions. But I pray that our, our, our hearts would be soft. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning and you recognize that you have been deceived by the enemy in some way, shape, or form, or that you're susceptible to his deceptions, or you look at your life and you see you're not looking at the things above, that you're more distracted with the things of this world, and you're not, you're not seeing what God would call you to live and how he would call you to live, and you, you want to repent of that, you want to change that, um, you pray however you want to pray, but uh, I'm just going to pray on behalf of us. And I just encourage you to join me in this prayer. Father, none of us are perfect. We never will be. Well, not in this world we won't be. We will fight our flesh and we will fight this world. And so, Lord, we confess that many times we listen to the deceptions of our own hearts. We confess that many times we listen to the deceptions of the enemy. 
instead of the truth that you've given to us in your word and by your spirit. Father, we confess to listening to those lies. We repent of them. Father, would you give us strength to walk in the newness of life that you have created in your people? Father, by your spirit, would you fill us that we might be able to resist the devil and his schemes? Would you allow us to put on your armor? Father, may we walk by your spirit, not by the flesh. May we be faithful. If you're here this morning and you have never experienced what it is to be brought from dead to alive, I want to pray for you. Father, I know there's some in this room, in a room this size, there has to be. And only you can open their eyes to see you. And I pray you do that right now by your spirit. I don't care what age they are, whether they're 80 or they're five, I pray that you would open their eyes to see you, that you might do what you did to me on that beach in the Dominican Republic so many years ago, that you might do that to them right now. That you'd pierce the darkness and you would bring to life that which is dead. For the sake of your name and your glory, for the sake of their souls, I pray, Lord, that you would do that. If you want to talk with someone about that this morning, I want to just say after the service, please come down and talk with one of our prayer counselors and pastors. But I want to commission us with this text and prayer. So just keep your eyes closed. But don't overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because the coming of the day of God, or because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Father, as we now gather together this morning, we come to fix our eyes upon you, but we also come to submit our hearts to you, to open our hearts to you, to be corrected where we need to be corrected, convicted where we need to be convicted, encouraged where we need to be encouraged. And I pray that you would bring that about in each of your people. But Lord, I pray that as we go out, that we would be, that we would be such a people that would live in light of what is going to come that we would live as light in the midst of darkness, even if the world hates us, that we would trust in your sovereignty and in your work and that you will bring to end all of these things. Father, I pray that you would help us to, 
to, to not fear death, to not fear rejection, but to be bold, to go out into this place, into our workplaces and into our homes, to our friends, to restaurants, and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ that you can bring to life that which is dead. Give us eyes to see. Send us out boldly for the sake of your name and for your glory. Father, I pray and ask all of these things. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.